you seek the key. But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. I'm Dominic Chu in from Melissa Lee, and this is The Big Show. Welcome to Fast Money. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Adami, Tim Seymour, Dan Nathan, and Karen Feinerman. Tonight on Fast, we are all over the after-hours action and shares of Micron. That stock moving lower on the back of its earnings report. The company's call, earnings call, is now underway. We're listening in. We will break down all those big headlines. Plus, more on today's retail wreck. Names like Macy's, Nordstrom, Gap, all falling very hard. As you can see there, we'll go shopping for opportunity in that retail sector. And then later on, buy gold now. That's the message from one top Wall Street firm. We will debate if there is any shine left in that big trade. But we start first with breaking news out of Disney. The stock is moving lower in the after-hour session as the company announces some very, very major job cuts. Let's get right into our own Julia Borston with the big details, and these are tens of thousands, Julia. That's right, Dom. Disney is laying off 28,000 domestic employees at its parks experiences and product segment. Now, that will affect employees across all levels, hourly, salaried, and executive roles. Disney is saying that 67% of those affected are part-time workers. Josh DeMauro, who's chairman of Disney's parks experiences and products division, saying, quote, in light of the prolonged impact of COVID-19 on our business, including limited capacity due to physical distancing requirements and the continued uncertainty regarding the duration of the pandemic exacerbated in California by the state's unwillingness to lift restrictions that would allow Disneyland to reopen, we've made the very difficult decision to begin the process of reducing our workforce at our parks, experiences, and products segment. Now, just to put some of this in context, Disney World, which has partially reopened, had an estimated 77,000 or so employees before the pandemic. Disneyland has an estimated 35,000 employees. And all of Disney, that employee base has been reported around 220,000 employees. So this is a meaningful piece of that domestic uh, theme park division. Uh, guys, back over to you. All right, Julia Borson, thank you very much for that. I know that you will be staying on top of that story and the developments there. So, so folks, let's trade this with Disney. Guy, I'll go to you first for this. I mean, we knew it was coming in some way. It couldn't have been that easy. We, we couldn't have gotten away that unscathed. In this kind of a scenario, with a theme parks business, is it going to have a longer-term impact in, say, the next three to six months? Are investors already looking beyond that? Well, hey, Dom, again, great having you here. You know, maybe I'm just not paying attention, but I didn't see, you know, it wasn't as telegraphed, it, it, for me at least, as maybe it was for you. So I think it is a bit of big news. You know, Julia mentioned, and I read, this is 67% part-time. doesn't make those folks feel any better. And Disney probably employs close to a quarter of a million people. So you can do the math and see it's almost 10% of the workforce. You know, at, at this point, you're trying to figure out where do you get in the name if you haven't. And if you go back and look, I know all three people on the panel can speak to this, that 118 level was resistance forever until it broke out on a number of different reasons, not least of which was Disney Plus coming to fruition. It stands to reason that 118 will be support. And you know what? 
given the news and given the way the stock has been trading, we probably get there. But to me, what this speaks of is lack of clarity. Uh, there's no way that they would do this if they had clarity over the next three to six months, which clearly they don't have and clearly uh, is concerning, um, given how far we are in the timeline of this COVID uh, virus. This is much more of a story about the portfolio of businesses that Disney has to offer from a media perspective. And maybe I'll turn to you for this one, Tim Seymour. As you take a look at the moves that Disney has made, there's no doubt it has underperformed this year, but not to the degree that other COVID-impacted hospitality and leisure companies have. Disney is immune to certain aspects of COVID. Are investors accentuating the positive on things like Disney Plus, ESPN Plus, the other parts of that media empire besides just the theme parks? Well, that, one of the reasons why, and Dom, yes, great to have you again today. And one of the reasons why investors uh, like me have held this stock for a long time is the diversification in the business. Again, we have a DTC business that's not just what we talk about with Disney Plus streaming, but obviously uh, with their consumer products, their studios, uh, their cable networks, and, and their consumer experiences, which, which we know uh, last quarter. First of all, Disney crushed it last quarter on a relative basis because they actually controlled costs. And yet they had a $2 billion loss uh, in this very business. So um, at a time when we've looked at this company for the last now six months with a slightly different eye on their balance sheet, I'm happy to see this news. And yeah, you bet. DTC, Disney Plus leaning into this business. They've already hit the bottom end of their range between 60 and 90 million subs for 2024. They've got that now. Um, so, you know, to me, uh, I'm happy to see Disney, as painful as this is, and this is indicative of, of more labor market woes we're going to see in this country over the next three months. Um, this is important for this company to get as lean as possible. And last quarter, they showed a billion one in operating income profit that no one expected them to get to. So I'm happy to see this news today. Yeah, I, I think it's important that they're actually really trying to get a handle on their expenses. You know, the saying, never let a crisis go to waste. So here, maybe this is an opportunity for them to get leaner, to have some cover to do that. But remember, I mean, as great as the collection of properties are between the hotels, the theme parks, the studios that can't release things in theaters, that's sort of having a little bit of a rough time doing uh, paying for that, like, you know, a Mulan um, I sort of think that there's a little more downside to come because, remember, this company took on a ton of debt to do the Fox deal, 20th Century Fox deal. And so even if they start to get it together, the valuation is still expensive. It's a premier company. It's, it deserves a premier multiple. But it seems to me to have a little bit more even of a premier multiple than where the business is right now or where it even will be next year. Karen, can, can I follow up with that, though? From an investor standpoint, What's the most important part of the Disney empire or the Disney narrative, the story for you right now, given what we know about COVID, given what we know about the movie studios and theme parks? What part keeps you in the stock over the medium to long term? Well, I'm not in it, but I, streaming has been the focus. Although, remember, streaming is actually costing them money, but that's OK. They need to spend. They need to be in the game. They're doing a great job of it. But uh, they got to get those theme parks open. I know it's out of their control, but um, it's, it's, I'm going to wait and watch. All right. So wait and watch. Dan, Nathan, it seems like a lot of folks are going to be waiting and watching. In fact, most of the analysts that cover this stock have a hold rating on it right now. There's probably a reason why. What exactly do you need to see to really get more bullish on Disney? 
Yeah, I think, unfortunately, I think Guy hit the nail on the head right out of the gate. It's just a lack of visibility. You know, in this parks business, there's two separate scenarios. You know, they have the much smaller park in Florida, which has been open, but I don't think people are particularly going. And then the one in California, which they kind of complain a little bit about the restrictions that it's been closed. There's also wildfires there. There's a lot going on um, that I'm not so sure people are going to be crowding into those parks anytime soon before there is a uh, a vaccine for the virus or some sort of herd immunity. So as I think about this story, I'd say that this stock has actually acted pretty rationally. If you think when the stock broke down in February from 140, it went straight to 80. That's when the whole market was in a free fall. No one knew what to expect here. Bottomed out near 80 bucks and it never made a new high. I mean, in a lot of ways, I think that shows a bit of investor skepticism here. So the fact that this stock is back towards that 120 level that Guy mentioned where it broke out from, um, I think a year and a half ago when they announced the Disney Plus, that makes some sense. If you can hang out here with this name, I think it makes a lot of sense. I think you start picking on this thing on the long side between 120 and 110. All right, folks and viewers out there, uh, just to kind of clarify those comments I just made, according to CNBC.com, right now there are nine hold ratings on Disney, 11 buy ratings, and it looks like six strong buys, no sells, no underperforms, and the current average target price is $134.91. All right, we've got some breaking news right now on Palantir. Let's go right up to Leslie Picker with those details. Hi, Leslie. Hey, Dom. Uh, Palantir uh, is set to, uh, they set their reference price with the New York Stock Exchange at $7.25. Uh, that reference price is particular to a direct listing, which is what uh, differentiates Palantir from the traditional IPO process where you would have a price range and then they would pick their IPO price. A reference price is a little bit different. It's largely based on where they've been trading in the secondary markets, the private markets uh, most recently. That in conjunction with consultation uh, with Palantir's advisors, the uh, designated market maker with the New York Stock Exchange and so forth, they all come together to come up with this reference price just to give traders essentially a, a benchmark mark or a guidepost of where to start trading uh, when that company begins its debut tomorrow. Uh, it's expected to start trading tomorrow morning. So $7.25. That is more similar to where the company was trading their volume weighted average price in August. Uh, in September, it was up a bit more, about $9.17. Now, Palantir is known for data mining. They do that for government. They do that for uh, big corporations. Uh, they said that they were expecting about a billion dollars in top line uh, on, on the revenue side this year. That's top line growth of about 41% year over year. The company's still unprofitable, uh, but clearly uh, it'll be interesting to see tomorrow how it debuts. This $7.25, it's important to note that no money is actually exchanged at this price, as you would see in an IPO where you'd get allocation at the specific IPO price. This is really just a guidepost for traders uh, for tomorrow. Tomorrow morning's trading, Dom. All right, Leslie, really quickly before we let you go, at that $7.25 reference price, what is the implied valuation or market cap of Palantir? It, yeah, it's about $16 billion at that point. So it's below where they were uh, valued at in the private markets. All right, Leslie, pick with the latest there on Palantir. Thank you very much. $7.25, that's the magic benchmark number for tomorrow's direct listing trade. Dan Nathan, I'll go to you with this one here. Palantir has been one of the most highly anticipated public offerings. I'm not going to say IPO because it's technically a direct listing, but you get it, right? It's coming public. It is yeah. very highly anticipated. 
Is this a stock that you want to get into at that $16 billion valuation? Well, it's funny. $16 billion, um, I think Leslie just said, on a billion-dollar run rate. So 16 times sales for a company like this that's not profitable, that's been around for 17 years. Um, seems like in the public markets, they're going to actually have to lay out a plan of how they reach profitability um, and how they do that routinely. And then the, the stock can kind of grow into one of those valuations that we're seeing with a lot of these SaaS companies where the valuations are off the charts. So to me, a $16 billion to get in on something that um, I think is pretty interesting going forward, at least as far as their contracts, where they sit um, it just in the tech uh, landscape, I think is pretty interesting. I can't say to buy it here. I think with a new listing like that, you got to see how this thing trades a little bit um, because, again, they're not issuing shares. Let's see what the supply demand looks like after a couple days of trading. Tim Seymour, what do you think? I, yeah, I, look, I, I do think that there's a case where this stock has already had a market. Typically, you would see that the public markets would bring more liquidity at times um, that can that can help. In this case, I, I think it's actually going to hold the share price down. But I, I would echo what Dan's saying. The, the difference is, and at least what the company is trying to represent to the market, is that this is a company that now has a broader set of customers than just governments. And that, in fact, that the power of, of their data mining software is something that will give them a larger addressable market. It's a high margin business. It's a business where software companies have been shooting to the moon, and that's everybody from Salesforce uh, to Snowflake, you name it. So um, I think the, the function of the listing is something that uh, will be a very different event than what we saw a couple weeks ago with Snow. Um, but having said that, I think this is a widely anticipated name that people will want to own, and, and I think the valuation is fair. All right. $16 billion at $7.25 for Palantir's direct listing. That's the key number to watch there. Well, the breaking news keeps rolling in. This time it's on Regeneron. That stock is halted in the after-hour session. The company just reporting some promising results for its coronavirus antibody cocktail. Again, not a vaccine, a treatment for COVID-19. Let's get right out to Meg Terrell with the details there. Good afternoon, Meg. Hey, Dom. Well, this is in the class of drugs, uh, the first that has been designed specifically to treat or potentially prevent COVID-19. It's from Regeneron. These are the earliest data we've seen on their approach. Uh, And they had data from about 275 people who are not hospitalized with the coronavirus, uh, but who were diagnosed with the disease, so not severe disease. And they say they are seeing encouraging signs uh, that the drug may reduce uh, viral levels uh, and improve symptoms faster uh, than the placebo. They also said they saw positive trends in visits to the hospital, but the numbers were pretty low uh, in this study because this is a group of uh, patients who typically does get better by themselves. But they're saying this validates this approach as a therapeutic substitute for the naturally occurring immune response because they're actually delivering antibodies the same way a vaccine might induce them or infection might induce them. Now, the company holding a conference call right now, the Q&A just began. Analysts sounding pretty encouraged as they're asking questions here. The stock is still halted. And you can see here the other companies that are involved in the antibody space, including Lilly, Veer, and GlaxoSmithKline. Uh, Lilly, of course, reported its uh, results a couple weeks ago. Both of these companies are continuing to run these trials in different populations as both treatment for severe disease and in potential prevention. Prevention. Uh, but Regeneron saying they will talk with regulators uh, to consider whether they can go forward with an application for emergency use authorization based on these data. So positive signals. Still early days, though, guys. Back over to you. All right, Meg Terrell, thank you very much for the update there on Regeneron and his COVID-19 uh, treatments. So let, let's toss this around. Guy, I'll go to you first with this one. Regeneron, they've been talked about as one of the more promising 
candidates with regard to these kinds of treatments here. Does this make you feel as though the trajectory is the right direction right now for many of these types of drug companies? I think we've been headed in the right direction for a while. And I, I guess the good news for Regeneron in terms of the stock is it's probably sold off 60 or $70. Maybe it's 10 or 11% from the recent all-time high. So, I mean, it, maybe there's an opportunity to get in depending on what it looks like on the reopen. But I think, to your point, the entire space has been really interesting. And you've had pullbacks in all these names. Meg just mentioned Eli Lilly. Eli Lilly is off considerably from its all-time high as well. I think Gilead, if you go back and look, this 61 $62 level has been a trough now for the last couple of years. So risk-reward, I think, in Gilead sets up well. And I have no idea what Moderna is doing, if it's higher or lower in the after hours. But, you know, maybe that one is worth taking a look at again. In terms of what – I just look at this in terms of the broader market – is this the news that's going to get us back to that 3393 level in the S&P 500, the prior all-time high? Or is this a non-starter for the market? To me, that's the most interesting thing out of all of this. Uh, Karen, as you, as you look at the investing landscape right now, given, given all of the COVID-19, either vaccines or treatments or anything else related to there, are, are there names that stand out to you, the ones that you feel are more promising, wh- whether they be on the spectrum of vaccine or treatment or anything else? Is it Regeneron? Is it Gilead? Is it somebody else? Well, it's actually so two different things. There's is, are the vaccines promising? And then there's the question of do you want to own the stocks? Do you want to own the stocks? Definitely not. I mean, we've seen time and again, and Guy can speak to it um, better than I, but we've seen names like Moderna up huge and then down. And then, I mean, a number of them, because even if they get there, Right. We don't know what the pricing is going to be. We don't know how they're going to be able to manufacture enough doses. Um, We don't know how many competitors there will be. So that's a lot of things to try to figure out for each particular company. And on the whole, it just I don't feel like I'm able to do it. So if I wanted to be in the space at all, I would do it through, uh, you know, an, an ETF, the biotech space. I wouldn't play particular names specifically for a vaccine. All right. So, 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 uh, I mean, as we look at this, Dan, Nathan, is there anything about this entire industry? Do people just want to be long biotech over the medium to longer term as part of their portfolio? Because this is not the last time we're going to see some kind of a communicable disease that motivates the entire industry to go after something targeted like this. Yeah, I, you know, that's a good question, Dom. And I think that, you know, when you think about the money and you think about the mind share that's been focused on this industry over the last nine months or so, it is truly remarkable when you think about the work on the, on the treatments and on the vaccines. I think the fact of the matter is, is that a treatment is fantastic. There's going to be a bunch of them. Some are going to work. We're talking about a treatment right now in 275 patients where half of them got a placebo, where the press release says that it kind of worked better than the placebo. Let's keep it real here, people. There's none of these... Uh, vaccines or treatments in the near term are going to open back Disney World or Disneyland anytime soon. That's not happening. So when I think about this sort of space, I almost want to think about Abbott. I want to think about these rapid testing systems. That is probably the easiest way to start to get schools open, to get some businesses open that haven't been open, um, because a lot of people are just going to be really skeptical about some of these drugs. And until we can have them in mass quantities and until we have enough time to evaluate the efficacy of them, I just don't think we're, we're going to they're just going to do what the stock market thinks that they can do in the near term. 
All right. Big story coming up there for sure. Thanks, guys. Coming up on the show, we're all over the after hours action and shares of Micron as well. The breaking news just keeps coming. It reported earnings just this afternoon. We will bring you all the details coming up straight ahead as those shares down three and a half percent after hours. Plus, flag on the play. The headline out of the NFL that sent gaming stocks tumbling today. The details when fast money returns after this commercial break. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. All right, breaking news. In just the last hour or so, we heard that Disney is planning to lay off around 28,000 people in its theme park division across all sectors, part-time, full-time, executive, hourly. Those shares down 1.5% right now on nearly half a million shares of after-hours volume. We'll continue to monitor that story, and our own Julia Borston continues to dig into that, so we'll keep you apprised of what's going on there. We are also following a developing story out of Washington, D.C., over a new proposed, proposed $2.2 trillion stimulus plan. Let's get straight out to Ilan Moy with the details there. Good afternoon, Ilan. Hi, Dom. A source tells me that Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin is likely to make a counterproposal when he talks to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi tomorrow. Now, the two of them had already spent 50 minutes on the phone today discussing that $2.2 trillion dollar stimulus plan from the Democrats. And so far, there have been some positive signs from both parties. Pelosi has said that she's optimistic. And White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows said that he is hopeful that progress can be made. Now, the White House had most recently signaled it would be willing to go up to about one point five trillion dollars. We'll see if that number changes tomorrow. But there are several areas in which the White House and Democrats do agree. Democrats' bill includes $182 billion for K-12 education. There's also an extension of PPP funding for the hardest-hit businesses, as well as $25 billion in aid for the airlines. However, the open questions remain how much money should be had for unemployment assistance, the funding levels for state and local governments, as well as whether Senate Republicans would be willing to send direct checks to consumers. Those are the line items that will determine whether or not these talks move forward, Dom, or whether they simply fizzle out once more. Back over to you. All right, Ilan Moy, thank you very much for the latest there on the D.C. deliberations. Try saying that five times fast. Thank you very much. So how are stocks hanging on these hopes for a stimulus package Karen Feinerman, I turn to you for this one. How important is that, the extra money from the government, if it comes to the overall market? It's gigantic. It's gigantic. And I think that for the market, we had sort of a month ago, price stimulus is near 100 percent. And then obviously that didn't happen. Now I think the market is pricing, I don't know, something like 10 percent, 20 percent. I'm not sure. But if it actually does happen, then I think that's a giant boon for the market. All right, a giant boom for the market there. Tim Seymour, we've been focused very much on what's happening with COVID-19, the trajectory of the virus, the stimulus package. And then just yesterday, we talked about the fact that it's all awash in liquidity, $90 trillion worth from central banks around the world. How important is this story, given the fact that central banks keep pumping out money? 
Well, Karen has uh, emphasized that this is an important story. And I, I just look at the S&P. I, I think uh, you have to look at it once again relative to where we came from. So we came from absurd levels in August where the biggest companies in the world had blow off tops. Uh, and then the S&P fell uh, 10%. The triple Qs and NASDAQ 100 fell close to 18%. Um, but the, the S&P has now rallied back 5%, right back up to that 50-day, which looks like it's probably resistance. I'll let the chart folks take it from here. Simply to say, I, I think you actually have, in the last three or four days, priced back in a fair amount of excitement about this $2.2 trillion coming. And, and it seems obvious that the Dems going into even the debate tonight had to drop something in there. So it seems to me that this is a case where the market does need more. We hear this from Fed Powell over and over again. Um, at some point, however, um, I do think without any real delivery of this, the market is going to struggle. And I think this 50 right now is actually resistance on the market. The Fed, as you pointed out, uh, and I will say all day long, is the ultimate story here and why I think the market has limited downside. But I think it tests lower. All right. Monetary and fiscal policy and key focus there. Thanks very much, guys. We are just getting started here on Fast Money. Here is what's coming up next. It's never too early to start the countdown to Christmas. But will it be a happy holiday for retailers or will they all get a lump of coal in their stockings? We'll dive into the debt markets to get some answers. And later, we're looking at some golden opportunities in precious metals. Where options traders think gold is headed next. We've got that and a lot more when Fast Money returns. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. It was a tough day for retail overall. The XRT ETF, that's the one that tracks the space, falling 1.5% today. And check out some of these mall-based names, names like Macy's, Kohl's, Nordstrom, The Gap, all finishing, as you can see there, deep in the red on the day. And your next guest says there could be even more pain ahead for some of these types of names. Chris White is the CEO of BondClick. Thank you very much for being out here with us. Let's talk about whether or not this retail trade is something that can bounce back and how exactly do traders and investors play it? Well, thanks for having me, Dom. I think a big part of looking at the retail sector is being told, or at least the story is being told really in the debt markets. Obviously, with COVID-19 hitting the market or hitting the U.S. market in, in late February, early March, uh, there were a lot of questions as how to ret how retailers would survive. What we saw in terms of the data is that bonds definitely did reprise for, for the big uh, retailers, Gap, Macy's, uh, L Brands, Nordstrom's, Bed Bath & Beyond. But overall, we saw flat customer flow by volume, 
which just tells you that the, the bond investors themselves did not lose faith in retailers and, and actually were, were you know, balanced in terms of buying and selling activity. So um, that, that happened really. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, no, no. no. So, so I was going to say that following up on that comment, th- that implies that there is some kind of a handicapping about the viability of these businesses if the debt markets and debt investors are getting in on the action. What exactly can you glean? What is the likelihood that these brick and mortar retailers or mall operators or anybody else actually come out of this on the better end of things, say, 6, 12, 18 months from now? Yeah, that's really the story actually starts to get interesting around retailers when we get into June and we look at, at, at debt, um, mainly because the retailers came back to the corporate bond market. In particular, L Brands and Macy's in early June both issued secure offerings into the marketplace. I think the L Brands offering was a six and seven, eight, five year deal for about $150 million. And Macy's issued a similar deal while, while larger. It was a secure deal at eight and three eighths. Uh, for $1.3 billion. Um, so that was basically the market accepting retailers back in terms of uh, them taking those bonds off their hands and actually investing them. What happened, though, coming into September is where we see a differentiation between how the investors are act- reacting to retailers. On a net basis, just looking at trading activity, um, bond investors have been net sellers of Macy's debt. And that's very concerning because if Macy's is going to have to up the incentives for investors to um, to take on their new issue deals. That means the cost of capital for Macy's in the debt markets is going to continue to go up because investors have lost faith. These are the signals that people need to look at when they're trying to understand what are the future of some of these retailers. Because clearly, Dom, they're going to have to borrow money to get through this storm and hopefully make it to Christmas and maybe bounce back. But if the cost of debt capital keeps on going up, it really reduces the chances that they're going to be able to recover. All right. Credit spreads a key focus there. Many of these companies can still borrow at semi or relative attractive rates. We'll continue to monitor that. And I'm sure, Chris, you will as well. Thank you very much for your insights, Chris. We appreciate it. Thank you so much, Tom. All right. Let's trade it, guys. Guy Adami, I go to you first. These retailers, they've been beaten up. Some of them are better than others. Which do you go towards? No, I mean, some of them are not only better, they're just leaps and bounds better. And there have been a number of names that we've talked about. Dollar Gen, I think DG made an all-time high today. Restoration Hardware has been an absolute monster. Obviously, you know, Karen, Tim, and Dan can speak to what's been going on with Walmart. Nike had ridiculous earnings the other day. I mean, so there are retailers here and there that have managed to um, navigate these waters extraordinarily well. And, and you stay with the winners. I think the inclination for a lot of people is to try to find a lagger that might catch up. There's a reason why certain start stocks are lagging. You don't go near them. All right. So, so maybe, Dan, Nathan, I'll, I'll turn to you here. I don't know if you have a position in it, but the other name that keeps popping up over the last several days on the all-time high list is Target. It's the big box-ish retailer that keeps popping up with a new record high incrementally every couple days or so. What types of companies, types of stocks in this retail business? Is Target the kind of company you want to own in this environment? Yeah, no doubt about it. I mean, I think the grocery business was a really important part of it. It was obviously deemed to be an essential retailer during the the height of the quarantine, and that kept them in the game. And it also helped them accelerate some of the things that they were doing um, on the direct-to-consumer side. So their omni-channel has really just kind of come into its own during this period. I'll just mention one thing about the XRT, that's the S&P retail um, ETF. Tim has pointed out on numerous occasions the relative outperformance here. You know, this 
thing is breaking down a little bit. It's down a little less than 10% from its recent highs. I think we have a chart here, you know, playing for a pullback um, down to about the breakout level near 45 makes some sense to me, especially despite those consumer confidence numbers are very good. We're about two months now um, since we've had those expanded unemployment benefits. If we do not get stimulus um, or additional stimulus anytime soon, I expect the XRT to retest 45 to the downside near term. All right. Big, big deal there as well, because that ETF is more on an equal weight basis versus the market cap weighted ones that we're used to out there. Believe it or not, folks, we have even more breaking news. It's just a big afternoon for it. This time it's on General Motors and its deal with Nikola. Phil LeBeau, all over that story. He's on the fast line right now with the details there. What can you tell us, Phil? Dom, we have confirmed through sources that uh, the discussions between Nikola and General Motors, uh, they were trying to hammer out a deal by tomorrow. That was the deadline that they uh, had set for finalizing the deal when they first announced it on September 8th. But obviously, given everything that has happened over the last three weeks, um, there were a number of discussions and still are discussions between General Motors and Nikola. Our sources tell us that they will not finalize an agreement by tomorrow. However, the discussions between the two sides continue. We may see a deal announced maybe two, three, a week from now. Um, that's still a possibility. There's also the possibility that things could fall apart. But to be clear, they will not finalize a deal by tomorrow. However, the discussions continue between GM and Nikola. Dom? All right, Phil LeBeau, thank you very much. I know you'll stay on top of that story as well. For, for listeners on SiriusXM who didn't see those charts, what we are seeing is a spike in the after hours in shares of General Motors, up 1.5% on roughly 83,000 shares of volume. Meanwhile, you've got a drop in shares of Nikola. Oh, no, now they've reversed around. Nikola's now up 5% after falling about that equal amount just about five minutes ago. About half a million shares of volume there for Nikola. So a very volatile trade in the after-hour session relatively for General Motors and Nikola. So let's talk a little bit more about this. And maybe, Karen, I'll go to you for this one here. This is a story that made a lot of waves because of the Hindenburg research report, the short selling side of things on Nikola and Trevor Milton. It cost him his job. Is General Motors still a stock that you want to invest in if they are making strategic types of investments like in Nikola? Well, I'm long General Motors, so the answer would be yes. I liked the Nikola deal <laughs> for them before the Hindenburg uh, came out. Uh, but I think that you know, they haven't negotiated a final deal yet. I think GM holds every single card here. So we may see a very different deal, a deal that's even better for GM than the one that they originally announced. Clearly, though, Nikola is, you know, the, the still, even if they do it, it's a bit of a black eye for GM in that their due diligence couldn't possibly have been, uh, have, uh, have unearthed everything in the Hindenburg report. But I think it's an interesting deal for GM. They, they can get a better deal than they cut originally. And so I think, you know, let's see how it plays out. It'll be either really good for them or they'll walk away with a little bit of an embarrassment. But having put no money up at all, I think uh, they'll just have to go on and look for the next product that hopefully will will invigorate their EV business. There is certainly, Tim Seymour, a a difference between Nikola and Tesla even though it's Nikola. Anyway, Tesla is a different type of company than Nikola, different part of the life cycle. So would you rather Nikola or Tesla at these levels? Wow, you can't do this to me, Dom. Please. I mean, this is, this is not a case where I could do either. 
I, I mean, it, it's it like it's a case where um, there they are apples and oranges. Um, there's some commonality in both of these stories are long on promises. Uh, and in some cases, I, I think lacking a lot of detail. Um, the story out of Tesla's battery day was an enormous amount of, of high expectation uh, and delivery and actually some discussion of, of essentially the, the, the distance traveled and the, essentially the price per megawatt uh, and what this meant for the next re-rating cycle and, and ultimately where you could actually deliver their cars, the, the, the Model 3, uh, profitably, which is something we've never seen. And, and there's an argument that the profitability there um, has not been really sustainable long term. The story with Nikola uh, and GM is one where I, I think you, you had GM saying, hey, look, um, this validates our technology as it relates to hydrogen fuel cells and even our EV battery technology. And that's something that I think the market is still waiting to determine whether they want to apply more valuation to GM's other business that they've never even looked at. So um, that's the real key here. And again, I think Bosch and the Italian partner are also players in this uh, and haven't run for the door either on Nikola. So um, that, that's how I look at this. A very, very interesting story, of course, developing right now with Nikola and GM. The deal, we'll see if it closes in any kind of different shape than we already know. Guys, thank you very much. Coming up on the show, shares of Micron are dropping in the after hours. The company's earning call was just wrapped up. The shares off 3% after hours. We will bring you that trade, those details when Fast Money returns after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got an earnings alert for you on Micron. Those shares are dropping in the after-hour session after reporting its quarterly results. It's off 3% right now in the after-hour session. Let's get right out to Josh Lipton with the details. And Josh has been monitoring that call. Josh, what can you tell us? So, Dom, I did check in with one Micron bull, Mehdi Hosseini, over at Susquehanna. I wanted his take. In his opinion, Q1 guidance actually implies that Micron is well navigating the pressure we see in memory chip pricing right now. Still a bull, he told me, most basically because he sees tight supply and strong demand by the spring in important end markets that Micron serves, like cloud infrastructure and 5G phones. On the call, CEO Sanjay Marotra talking about end markets, optimistic that demand is going to keep improving throughout 2021, but the short term outlook, he said, did weaken. The pandemic has taken a toll on the economy. For example, enterprise demand has softened. Also, restrictions on Huawei. Micron did halt shipments to that Chinese giant on September 14th. Huawei does account for about 10% of Micron sales. For a lot more from Sanjay Marotra, tune in tomorrow on Squawk Alley, where he will be a guest talking about this report. Dom, back to you. All right. Thank you very much, Josh Lipton, for that update on Micron. Big interview tomorrow on Squawk Alley. Sanjay Marotra, the Micron CEO. Guy Adami, let's toss this one to you here. We talked yesterday about the big narrative going on right now with chip stocks, China, the U.S., the overall macro narrative. Micron, is this a stock that you want to own, Guy? At a price. So, I mean, the good news, I think, for, for Micron was that DRAM, which is probably 70% of their revenues, they beat on a pretty significant way. Revenues uh, across the company are up 24% year over year. NAND was a bit of a disaster. I think the quarter was really good. Margins were good. I mean, everything was good about the quarter. I think the reason why the stock is lower, in my opinion, is first quarter guidance was lousy. Uh, they were probably better off not giving any guidance at all. So it comes down to now, where do you want to own the stock? And if you go back and look, 46.5 had been support or resistance and support again. So that makes sense on a number of different metrics. And the hope is that Micron's not becoming the cyclical name that plagued it 
for very, very many years. So I think 46 and a half is the level you get in this name, Don. All right. Year to date, that stock is down 6% entering this earnings report over the last 12 months, up 17% for viewers out there and listeners. Much more coming up, by the way, on the Disney news that sent shares tumbling. That is coming up next after this break. Welcome back. Options traders are betting big on bullion. Mike Coe spotted a big bullish bet in the market today. He joins us now with the action options action. Mike Gold, what's up? Yeah, I was taking a look at GLD, the gold ETF, which saw calls significantly outpaced puts earlier today. The result of a large buy of the December 190 200 210 Call Butterfly, buying 10,000 of the 190 calls, selling 20,000 of the 200s, and then buying 10,000 of the 210s. Targeting that $200 strike price, the buyer of that call fly was risking more than $750,000, betting that GLD could rise more than 12% by December expiration. All right, big bullish bet on bullion there. For more options action, Mike Coe, thank you very much. Be sure to tune in to the full show, Fridays, 5.30 p.m. Eastern, right here on CNBC. Must watch for all you traders out there looking for some options action. Well, much more on the Disney trade coming up. The company announcing some big layoffs. We will get instant analysis when we come back on this show. Keep it right here. Welcome back to Fast Money. Let's recap the big breaking news that we brought you at the top of this hour. Disney announcing major layoffs, the company slashing 28,000 jobs in its parks, experiences and products division. Disney taking sharp aim at California in its release, saying, quote, in light of the prolonged impact of COVID-19 on our business, including limited capacity due to physical distancing requirements and the continued uncertainty regarding the duration of the pandemic, exacerbated in California by the state's unwillingness to lift restrictions that would allow Disneyland to reopen. That's the bold part. We have made the very difficult decision to begin the process of reducing our workforce. So, yes, they are blaming in some ways the California state government for this. Joining us now for some instant reaction, Bernie McTiernan. He covers Disney for Rosenblatt Securities. I mean, Bernie, this is a huge deal. It's a lot of jobs leading up to an election. What exactly does Disney do in the coming weeks and months to try to get its business back on track? Yeah, um, and thanks for having me on. I mean, really, that we think we were taking the long view is that um, we always thought it would be a multi-year effort to get back to prior levels of profitability. Um, And this shows that you know, whether maybe it, it won't be on the top line, maybe it'll be a combination of revenue coming back um, with cost cutting as well. I mean, it's good that it shows the company's malleable, but at the end of the day, too, I mean, this is a massive amount of jobs that, um, you know, are leaving. And, you know, we've been waiting on California to come back. Um, Universal's been saying the same kinds of things about trying to work with the government to or local government to get them to reopen, and um, they haven't been able to. What is the biggest hurdle I, I guess is the best way to put it, that Disney as a company will face in the coming weeks. What can they do to get investors back on the bullish side of this particular trade? Well, I think that we've been one. The reason why you own Disney is is because of streaming and because of their content. And really, there's so much uncertainty in all of media, whether at the, whether that be parks and studios and people going back to theaters um, even on the advertising side, the one thing that is working for media companies is streaming. 
And really with Disney Plus, we're looking for um, an announcement with their Star Plus platform going um, outside of the U.S. sometime, maybe this year or early next year. And we think that that's going to get investors to talk about where the next 100 million subscribers for Disney is going to come from on the streaming side. So, and that would, you know, right now they're at close to 100 million um, and Netflix is at 200 million. So they'll be, you know, I think narrowing that gap over time and increasingly we'll be, you know, talking more and more and more about the profits and revenue of this company coming from streaming um, and not and not parks. Disney bulls have been accentuating the positive around Disney Plus for months, if not a maybe a more than a year at this point now. But I'm curious, Bernie, you heard me just read the statement that Disney issued with regard to why they're conducting these layoffs. They're laying a lot of this responsibility at the feet of lawmakers and regulators in California for not letting them reopen and do business the way that they want to do it. How do you react to that as an analyst that covers this kind of company? Um, again, it comes back to me saying, you know, thinking about what, what's going to be going on with the numbers. And as I said before, that we expect them to get back to prior levels of profitability um, over a multi-year period. We modeled it coming back on the top line. But frankly, it seems like it, it might be a combination of, you know, the top line and cost cutting. What's interesting is that it seems like the park business could be changing. I mean, your parent company, Comcast, they, they had plans to open up uh, or start construction on another major gate in Orlando and have completely paused um, on that plan just because it's uncertain kind of what the next generation of parks should look like. Um, and maybe it's less people and tickets cost more and you have less people working there. Maybe that's how this ends up. All right. Bernie McTiernan, who covers Disney for Rosenblatt. Thank you very much for bringing us that analysis here on those big Disney headlines. We appreciate it. Yep. Thanks for having me. All right, gang, let's trade it. Um, I mean, I take a look at what's happening right now, and maybe, you know, for this particular one, I will turn to you first, Dan Nathan. This is very much about a company saying this is not our fault. Is it not their fault? Is Disney not able to do this because of what's happening on the state and government side of things? Well, here's the thing, Disney. Welcome to the earth in 2020. None of it's our fault here, okay? So to blame a state or something like that because the state doesn't want you to have a super spreader, spreader park open, um, you know, I, I, I don't really understand that. I don't think that really buys you anything right here. So we're all in this thing together. Um, so listen, sadly, 28,000 employees are going to be hurt here. You know, there's 13,000 employees who work in the restaurant business. It's not feasible for a lot of those restaurants to be open in the capacity that they wish to be. It's a really bad situation for a lot of workers. It's just corporates whining about it, to me, doesn't make a whole heck of a lot of sense. Karen Feinerman, I mentioned before in the first part when these headlines first came out, other travel and leisure stocks are far worse off than Disney. Are there other parts of the travel and leisure hotel space that you would look at to nibble at, given these depressed valuations? No, I haven't, uh, just because I feel like there's so much debt there. Understandably, they have had to, they want to survive. They want to get back to the part where they can be profitable again. So they had to do it with debt. Um, and we've talked a lot about the airlines, how much debt they should get versus how much they should actually take on themselves versus a gift from the government. But it's bad everywhere. I just, I, you know, I don't understand the rhetoric against California as well. That doesn't really make sense to me. I do think, though, a headline like a Disney laying off 28,000 people, and maybe we'll see airline layoffs uh, coming later this week, I think that puts pressure on the government to reach some sort of stimulus. Guy Adami, you got 15, 20 seconds here. What's your takeaway? Travel and leisure, is it investable right now? 
No, and California's got more problems than, you know, a few thousand people getting on Mr. Toad's wild ride in California. Disney blew that one, in my opinion. All right. Some big commentary there coming out from that Disney trade. Now it's time for the final trades. Let's go around the horn. Tim Seymour, to you first. Uh, first, a happy anniversary to my beautiful wife. Second, Alibaba, oh. investor day over the last couple of days. Uh, you have drivers with Ant Financial coming to market, and I think this is a company that is cheap relative to the mega cap peers. Alibaba. All right, Dan Nathan. Yeah, I'm long Tim and Leah's uh, wedding here. Um, Abbott Labs. I like Abbott Labs here. All right, Abbott Labs. Karen Feinerman. Yeah, a name we haven't talked about in a while. Yum China. Obviously, they're ahead of us in the reopening, but I think we're going to continue to see improvement there. And Giadami to you. Coco, beware. Got me all excited about gold. Newmont Mining has sold off. I think you get back in NEM. What happened to Macho Man Randy Savage in this whole conversation? All right, guys, thank you very much for Fast Money and for watching tonight. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.